Senator Carrie Donovan is our guest here today at KBUT. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Carrie, let's start with maybe too huge a general question. What challenges does the Trump administration pose for us Coloradans? That is a huge question. You know, I'll talk about it in terms of SD5, Senate District 5, um, the great district I get to represent. A big portion of my district um, didn't vote for Trump, and they are, they're they're nervous about what the administration might do, what policies they might enact. A big portion of my district did vote for Trump. Um, they are excited about the promises he made and excited to see what his administration may or may not do. Uh, I think my job is, is twofold. One, to just make sure that I'm protecting the voice and the needs of SD5. Uh, that's what I do every day, um, but we'll pay close attention to it with the new administration. But also, I'm going to hold his feet to the fire on the promises he made, particularly the promises he made around the economy. He made some pretty strong claims about reviving economies that aren't doing as well as other parts. And if he doesn't do that, I think we need to hold him accountable for that promise. Well, one of the things Trump has talked about doing is repealing Obamacare. So let's talk health care. My health provider just dropped me. A tale all too common around here right now. Living in Gunnison County, we're a long way from serious medical help if we need it. Uh, Beyond the capabilities at the Gunnison Hospital, getting to Grand Junction or Denver requires a helicopter. Helicopters are expensive. So it's expensive to to provide health care to West Slope residents. It's expensive for us to buy it. So what can you do to help, uh, you know, common people find reliable and affordable health care? And what can you do to... Um, get companies to provide health care in Colorado. Yeah, so this issue is a really important one to uh, my district. And across the district, people are struggling with those individual plans. You know, a lot of the ACA is working well, uh, but parts of it aren't. And the part that isn't are the individual plans. And that's where I've been focusing my attention. Spent the summer meeting with a small group of people. Um, I was the only senator in the room and was really proud to fulfill that role And it was with insurance providers, people that run hospitals. Um, The lieutenant governor um, provided a leadership role in there as well. And we came up with a list of ideas. Some of those are legislation. We need to run laws and find the money to support them. Some are things that hospitals can do and some that they're already adopting, some that insurance providers can do. And, you know, what I'm operating under right now is the reality we're in. We'll see what the next administration does with healthcare, And then that'll be the reality we have to operate in. But you're right. We have to solve affordable health care for individuals in our mountain communities and on the western slope of SD5. And I really hope that the list of 20 ideas that we came up with, that those come to fruition and you feel the positive impact of those in the next two years. It's a complicated machine. I will not promise we'll fix it overnight, but it'll continue to be one of my top priorities because, like you said, it impacts you every day and significantly. Yeah. What would you say the likelihood of getting better health care for less in the next, you know, two, five, ten years? That's a tough question to answer. I would love to be able to tell you, yeah, we're going to fix it. Um, But I just don't know what the ACA repeal, replace process is going to look like, how that impacts us in Colorado. And then as a state, healthcare is one of the few issues where the state and the federal government can both impact. You know, a lot of issues stay in a different lane. It's either a city issue, a state issue, or a federal issue. Healthcare is really an issue that's a state and a federal issue. So I'm committed to impact it where I can. It just has to work for everyone, right? This is a promise that we made that we would have affordable healthcare for folks 
And um, that's just those people that are looking on the individual market, that promise just isn't working out for everyone. Well, Carrie, another issue in the crosshairs of a Trump administration would be public lands. It seems the incoming administration would uh, sell off our public lands if they could, or what they would call return them to the states. You've said you'll fight for public lands. You even introduced and passed a bill, the Public Lands Day Bill. If I'm not mistaken, Colorado's now the first state with a Public Lands Day. Congratulations. Can you tell us what you'll do at the state level to ensure lands remain in the public domain and why this is important? Yeah, it's incredibly important. I mean, public lands are foundational to the state, period, like full stop. And and it's the breadth and depth of public lands that I think we in communities like CB and Gunnison understand that it is it is the breathtaking vistas, it is the hidden back roads on BLM, it's that secret pocket canyon that you went camping in, you know, or it's that mountain wildflowers that, you know, you stumble upon in, in late spring. I mean, all those things are what make our quality of life so important. And it's also what attracts people to support our tourist economies. Um, you know, to state the obvious, ski resorts are on public lands. So, you know, all these things are foundational. So once we start talking about the transfer of public lands to state management, it is a paradigm shift. It's not just like the local bar changing ownership, but they're still going to serve the same favorite cold drink. It is totally changing how our state would function, it, particularly in our budget. If, if we talk about the state controlling public lands, I mean, think about what one wildfire would possibly do. And also, on a, on a broader, perhaps more philosophical level, these lands belong to everyone in the country. It's one of the most beautiful democratic ideals of the United States, is that public lands belong to every citizen of America. They're not just Colorados. They're not just Colorados. You know, I mean, I think we have the great benefit of being the protectors of them, well, being the backyard. stewards of them. It's our backyard. Um, you know, that I, I always say, like, people ask me, well, what makes you a local? And I was like, it's when you don't walk by trash. And I think that's what, you know, we do for the public lands. Like, we really are the stewards of them, but we take care of them for everyone. So this, I think it's a very slippery slope when people talk about this transfer of public lands to state ownership. And that's why I worked so hard on that bill last year that I was so glad that got passed. And I wouldn't have done it without the support of so many voices that chimed in on it. That puts a day on the calendar to say Colorado and the citizens of this state care about our public lands, maintaining them how they are, and protecting the quality of life that they represent. And when is uh, Public Lands Day here in Colorado? Talk about this bill and talk about the day that you helped push through. Sure. It's the third Saturday in May. And as you mentioned, we're the first state in the union to do this. So uh, really special opportunity that come this May come third Saturday, figure out a way that you want to celebrate our public lands. Go, you know, find a group to volunteer with, find a trail guru that's going to build some water bars. Um, if you have kids, take, take your kids out and go, go march around on a trail, you know, talk about what our public lands are. I'm really excited about what Colorado is going to do with this day, right? As a lawmaker, you kind of have these ideas, you work endless hours on them, have really difficult conversations, you know, really march the marble hallways of the Capitol to get get it over the finish line. 
and then the governor signs it into law and then all of a sudden it's the now it belongs to the citizens of the state it's no longer my bill it's it's CB's bill, it's Peonia's bill, it's you know who Boulder's bill, Vale's bill, and I can't wait to see what all these different communities do with public land state. But I'm hoping it's big so that we send a message of of protecting our public lands and, and keeping them public. Well, congratulations on that. I'm Chad Rich speaking with Senator Carrie Donovan here at KBUT. Uh, let's keep talking about public lands, and you just mentioned Peonia. Arch Coal operates in western Gunnison County. They're the largest methane emitter in Colorado, and it seems like they're getting the okay to build roads in an area called the North Fork Coal Mining Area, which is in a larger area that's uh, inventoried roadless. Um, County commissioners here in Gunnison County support building the roads. Um, They say it's to access uh, methane to capture, even though right now Arch Coal is just letting it vent up into the atmosphere, um, which is contributing to the greenhouse effect. Um, A local environmental group, High Country Conservation Advocates, and the town of Crested Butte oppose the ruling to allow roads. So what do you think about building roads in the roadless area? And before I guess we say that, we should preface that that the roadless rule comes with an exception to allow roads to be built. So it's it's a complex topic. So what are your thoughts here on building roads in the roadless area, just to start with? Yeah, you know, so complex issue is, as you've said, lots of different moving pieces um, and, it, you know, um, different communities with different priorities. Um, you know, Gunnison is a sprawling county, so you guys end up with things over the hills, even though it's Delta County who, you know, more interacts with, with, with that side of the hill. So It's like, downstream over there. Yeah, yeah. Here yeah. it's over the pass. That pass, and up there it's the top of their headwaters. So... I think what's what is an interesting thing to highlight with this particular issue is the importance of political dialogue. This past election season, I think, has left a lot of us scared to have conversations that have opposing views because it was a pretty contentious election and um, it was pretty emotional. Um, So I think when we come up with a topic like this where you have uh, different electeds within the same county having different opinions, uh, then communities having different thoughts about the pathway forward, the conflict that we sometimes see and struggle with between creation of new jobs in a struggling community with environmental protections and other communities, right? I mean, these are all difficult issues that I will not claim to know the correct answer for. But I think we do need to commit to at least talking about them, frankly, and looking for the areas of compromise. Now, if we can't find compromise, then you have to take other solutions. But that should be the first route. The 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 roadless rule is a complicated one. Um, I've been involved in in wilderness discussions. Uh, were the first political discussions I ever had in my life. My grandfather was one of the leaders in the wilderness movement back in the '60s, so I'm a, I'm acutely aware of what roadless means and you know the long term goals of maintaining areas and roadless. It's the highest protections that we can give to land is that wilderness designation. These proposals have have been kind of the status quo. And so they kind of renewed the status quo with this decision. Uh, 
so that's perhaps the one side of the issue. The other side of the issue is a ski resort community. And and we know perfectly well when the snow used to come and when it used to melt. And now when it's coming and now when it melts. I mean, we know what a run used to look like in March and what a run looks now in March. So to for a, a ski resort community and a bunch of people that have I mean well I certainly do have dreams about skiing starting in July oh yeah you know um, I mean we've got to be aware of of the big impacts of climate change on our community so big discussions but we as community members have to be willing to listen to the other side they have to be willing to us and we've got to we've got to find that middle ground yeah, because building the roads essentially allows for the venting of the methane which is going to allow for further exploration development of the coal more greenhouse gases going into the environment. That's at least the argument from high country conservation advocates here. The commissioners are okay with the temporary roads for methane capture. So what are, what are your thoughts on methane capture? I, I wouldn't say it's, uh, I would need to do some more research into that area before I could confidently, you know, really look into the issue. Um, I know I visited with, um, I visited with them a number of years ago when they were, when we were just talking about the overall coal economy of Gunnison and Delta counties and the future of it. And, and they saw this as a possibly a pathway for to keep some of those communities intact and provide some jobs. And, and we know that our neighbors over in Delta County are one of the areas of the state that are, that are struggling economically. You know, they've really seen a paradigm shift of what their community used to be to what it is now I think they're having incredible conversations over there about what a pathway forward could be while still honoring their mining heritage, you know, an important line to walk in a lot of our mountain communities that have shifted focus over the years. And, and, and methane capture was one, things, one of the things they thought could work. They also highlighted the complexity of it um, because it's not like you can tell methane where to go. It kind of, it's, it's a complicated process of capturing it, but, but again, let's, uh, let's look at it. If it's if it's something that they can do that creates jobs that's done safely and and is um, responsive to environmental concerns, you know, perhaps it's an option. If it's something that you know impacts and degrades a larger area, then let's reexamine it. A- again, it's you know gather information and, and let's make a decision together. Carrie, let's shift to population. People are moving to Colorado. A lot of them. Um, population set to double by 2050. What challenges does this present? Yeah, so I think um, I, I would highlight uh, probably th- two statewide issues and then a real local one. Um, and I don't think any of these are going to be surprises. Transportation, water, and then impacts on our backcountry. Water is going to be the limiting reagent in a lot of a lot of these circumstances uh, we've got to remember that we are an arid state uh, you know even though we all raft and fish and, and kayak um, and ski on water it's still a limited resource in our state and as population increases we're going to have to be very realistic about where the water for the shower and flushing the toilet comes from while still maintaining are really healthy riparian environments, right? Those two things are going to come in conflict, and we need to start talking about that now. We did that with the water plan, um, multi-year statewide process that you know really was a grassroots up, um, which I think is why it's a successful and important document. 
But it is going to be the job of the General Assembly to make sure that that's just not a pretty book sitting on a shelf. And we actually react to the directives that were given within that document. Transportation is going to be a very... uh, problematic issue as we grow in population. We already know that there are parts of the state transportation system that are congested because of the use. Um, You know, our highways from the front range up into the mountains um, during the weekends are ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's, it's not something that can be sustained long term. I don't think we should accept it as i've seen some other areas of the country you know they just kind of joke well that's just part of it i don't think that's the colorado way Uh, and then just so looking how we handle new capacity um and then maintaining what we have uh transportation is a really underfunded aspect of uh colorado's um overall budget and so that's going to be something that I think the voters of Colorado are going to see in the near future of, of new ways that we can fund transportation maintenance um, in, in our state as we look at these increased population pressures. I believe most of the population growth is going to be on the front range in that I-25 corridor, but guess where all those folks are going to come? They're going to come to our wonderful mountain valleys and communities. Uh, I mean, we that's why we live here. I can't blame them for coming up here. But the, as we see that increased population venture into our communities on the weekends or in the summer months and those impacts in the backcountry, uh, I think that's going to be something that we need to address uh, through funding, perhaps through policy, and very importantly, through partnerships with our federal um, partners and our, our the state partners in managing those lands. You mentioned the growth will be on the front range, but they're going to come to our mountain communities. This is going to have an effect on housing. Some municipalities in the state have tried to outlaw or limited this new phenomenon of short-term rentals, where houses and rooms are turned from residences to businesses or a combination. Here in Crested Butte, we can't quite figure out what to do. Uh, Right now, the council wants to put a limit of 180 days a year on short-term rental licenses. What's your experience in watching communities develop short-term rental regulations? Can you talk about some of the struggles and victories of regulating short-term rentals in District 5, which also has some other resort towns like Aspen and Vail? So can you talk about some of your experiences with short-term rentals in watching communities craft regulation? Yeah, you know, this has been um, an issue uh, city to city. Uh, I was on the Vail Town Council before I ran for the state Senate, and we were just starting to grapple with this issue when I was sitting on the council there. And it, it was it was twofold, and I think these are the common discussions that are happening across, across resort towns, is, is one, what are we taking off the market that then is not available um, for uh, worker housing or community residents, right? And then also, if people are renting it out, how are we ensuring that we're seeing that hotel-like usage benefit the tax base of the of the city, so that that tax isn't lost because obviously there's impacts of that guest coming here, just like they'd be in a hotel room. So, you know, and. 
in others in other cities i've seen some basically like detective work like one staff member becomes the detective that cruises airbnb sites and vrbo and make then, sure you're paying your taxes yeah and sends a polite email that says fyi you know just to support the town you need to you need to play by these rules and i think that's an effective approach in small towns uh, it, most people, even if they're renting out a room, they they care about the place. So, I, the other overall challenge of of workforce housing is just a discussion that started with the creation of the resort, and will probably maintain with a resort. Uh, you know, as long as we have them in narrow mountain valleys, where land is one of the scarcest resources that we have. Lots of communities have approached it different ways. Um, you know, I, I, I believe uh, CB has made it a priority, which I think is always great to see because you, the balance between a, a resort and a community, you have to be both in order to be successful. So it's not a place that the state um, really has a role to play because of our really strong local control, uh, not only like culture and mentality, but just the structure of how we can write laws. So it really is something that has to be solved on the ground. But I think that's entirely appropriate because no one knows Crested Butte better than the citizens of Crested Butte. I want to go back to the concept of water. We touched on it earlier. And as the front range grows, their need for water is going to grow. And there's always the threat of intermountain water diversion. We've managed to fight it off for the most part here in Gunnison County. Intermountain water diversions where they take West Slope water over the divide or maybe under the divide and use it to satisfy front range needs. 80% of the populations on the front range, 80% of the water is on the Western Slope. And the front range doesn't seem to be changing their consumption, watering lawns, whatnot. Um, and one can expect their thirst to increase with a larger population. So what will you do to keep West Slope water on the West Slope for our needs? It's a really important battle down there. And I don't use that word battle lightly. Uh, I don't think one drop of new diversion is appropriate. Um, we need to keep water in the basin that it was born in. And and that does become come down to some pretty contentious discussions and votes on the floor of the Senate down at the Capitol. Uh, there are um, a handful of issues that ignore party lines. And water is one of those where it doesn't matter what party you belong to, it matters what side of the divide you belong to. That being said, it's unfortunate that the Western Slope does not have the same number of votes as the as the thirsty front range, because just like you said, we have this mismatch of population and water supply. So the water plan, as, as was mentioned earlier, uh, went pretty far in saying that new diversions that we take water from the western slope and we deliver it to the eastern slope need to go through some pretty rigorous protocol. They have to reach a very high threshold uh, to, to even kind of get a nod of approval. So I'm glad we got it in the water plan. The water plan really talks that new diversions are really the very last option at the end of a very long laundry list of other things. The top of that laundry list is low-hanging fruit of water conservation. And as you had in your question, uh, 
we're not really seeing that get embraced yet. Um, and it's a little bit of a challenge of, is this something that should be uh, done through lawmaking? Or is this something that should be done through perhaps education or right kind of that carrot or stick approach? Uh, as we start creeping up in population and more pressures become on our water system, it may be more that we start reaching for a stick. Um, right now, I think that the communities on the front range are attempting to use a carrot to reduce water consumption. That's where you say, hey, it'd be great if you reduced your water consumption. Yeah, so or, we have plenty. You know, put in a low flow shower head or, you know, did some zero scaping instead of your huge Kentucky bluegrass. But there, if you don't want to. You don't have to. You don't have to. There's been bills that have been run about, you know, new developments um, need to show where their water is coming from. Those haven't gotten passed. There was a bill that was run about re talking about um, any new new houses um, or suburban developments had to reduce the number of their lawn. They could only have so much percentage of lawn per so many square feet of building. You know, so there's... I, there's ideas out there. Um, not a lot of them have been fully embraced yet or have been able to have successful passage through the Capitol. The other thing we're really looking at and I've been working on as an issue is really trying to give agriculture, who's a big consumer of water, but is really a pass-through, right? When agriculture use water to produce something and then you go buy that product at the farmer's market, you're the consumer of the water. But agriculture certainly uses water to produce all the great fruits and vegetables and, and meats that, that we then enjoy um, in the state. But, but giving them some flexibility on how they can use their water rights. And so we're really trying to be creative around that and, and saying, you know, if you figure out a way to be more uh, efficient in your water use, then perhaps you can sell your other portion of your water on a limited basis or on different years to, you know, an in-stream flow or for some other use, right? So we're really trying to prevent the ag um, buy and dry that's happening because the new developments go searching for water. They go to a farmer or rancher, they buy their water rights, they pull that water off the land, and now we've gotten um, a thirsty development that has a lot of water, but we've lost a ranch and we've lost or lost a farm. Well, Carrie, before we break today, let's take it back to the federal level. What does Ryan Zinke's appointment as Interior Secretary mean for public lands and water and western Colorado? Yeah, you know, a theme of this next administration is that we don't know. Uh, you know, we we are going to have a lot to learn come end of January and through the first hundred days of this new administration of where he's going to fall on a lot of policies important for Colorado and public lands is a critical one. So his cabinet appointments um, are going to have impacts on our quality of life. Uh, this cabinet appointment in particular, he has a mixed record, so we don't know where he's going to be on public lands. Um, we know that he's a sportsman and often sportsmen, you know, just like hikers or bikers or however you get out into the woods, you have a better appreciation for what public lands mean. He's also made statements that are pro, um, you know, state land transfers. So it's going to be one of those items that I'm keeping a very close eye on. And if I start to see um, this new administration in D.C. move against the interest of SDU-5, you know, it'll be one of my priorities to start looking at what we do in Colorado to protect 
our quality of life from changes that the administration would do that would impact us negatively. So Carrie, it seems a lot of times when you do these interviews, it's probably filled with questions of uncertainty and challenges in battles. But is there hope for residents of the Western Slope here in Colorado? (laughs) Give us some encouraging news here. Absolutely. Okay, so there absolutely is hope. Um, You know, politics can be about the contentious stuff. And a lot of times the newspapers and the TVs cover when we cover what we battle about. But there's a lot of things that we come together on. There are a lot of times where I get a phone call from a community member and we can solve a problem real quick. And that's what I love about the job. This is an incredible job. It's the hardest job I've ever had. It's my favorite job I've ever had. So it can't be all that bad if I love it so much. Uh, I mean, I think at the state level, you have a lot of people who are committed to doing the right thing, are there to fight for their communities um, and to make sure that everything is going as good as it can be for their part of Colorado. And so I think have faith, you know, and, and if and at least for me, if I'm not if I'm not doing what you think is best, give me a call um, and we'll have a have a good conversation and figure out the best pathway. Carrie Donovan, state senator for District five. Thanks for joining us today here at KBUT. Thank you so much for having me. I I really enjoy these conversations.